to Cinemakers, Steven Soderbergh. This is episode 24, Contagion, from 2011. I am Tobin Addington. I'm Mike Manzi. And I'm Joey Lewandowski. And guys, this is the first time in like a decade of Soderbergh movies, I was looking back, that I've enjoyed back-to-back movies. Hey! Congrats. <laughs> it's really been a one-for-you, one-for-them type of situation for me, but these last two... Oh, well, actually, that's not true. The last two episodes, I guess, because before we get into Contagion, I already realized that my whole theory, everything I've said in this episode so far has been a lie, because the last movie actually he made is a documentary and everything is going fine, which is a sort of a kind of a sort of a follow-up to Grey's Anatomy. Mm-hmm. It's after Spalding Gray died, Steven Soderbergh made a documentary, sort of like a biography kind of about his life, because he felt bad that he sort of, in that interview, what was the story, that I'm, if I'm remembering right, like, he knew that Spalding Gray was sick, and he sort of didn't go there because he didn't want to see him in a bad condition and then he died and felt bad and so he decided to make there he allowed himself or willed himself or volunteered to make this movie i think what he was saying was uh, after spalding had his accident he wasn't around as a friend as much as he had wanted oh right, to be. right, right. they had kind of lost touch after making their documentary and soderbergh kind of felt like he may have owed this to him maybe working with him one final time uh, if he could and so we is the driving force behind putting together this I guess it's, it's sort of like a documentary it's really Spalding's life told through his own words with footage from all of his spoken word monologues yeah it's, it's actually kind of a cool way to do a memoir I had never seen this movie I remember when it came out since I at the time hadn't seen the previous doc it wasn't my radar like I wasn't really interested in it but I I like this better than the last one I don't know and not at the beginning but as it went along I connected to this one more what'd you guys think oh I did not enjoy this very much at all What's weird is that as we're recording this, one of the last episodes that we just released on the feed was the Grey's Anatomy one. And so I just listened to that episode and I heard all three of us sort of kind of excited about the style of it. And like, it's not necessarily, you know, what we expected it to be or whatever, but like we all kind of liked it. And here it was just like, I couldn't get into it. I really would have preferred sort of a straight through style like the jumping around didn't do it for me like I'd rather have an entire monologue from him like a sort of train of thought or people talking about him like the way that it was laid out sort of it just it, it didn't do it for me yeah and I guess I was expecting more of that traditional type of documentary where there's people in his lives talking about him you know we get the story we get to learn about Spalding through his friends and people who knew him best but I guess Soderbergh also said in that interview he specifically didn't want to do that and wanted to find another approach and almost craft like a missing monologue out of his other material and I don't know like it just there's something lacking for me as well Uh, it's not Spalding because I do enjoy him as a character but I guess I was just my expectations were so wildly different that when it became sort of this uh, puzzled monologue put together, it's not that I didn't like it, it's just not what I was looking for, and I kind of had difficulty towards the end sort of paying attention and staying engaged and (laughs) maybe staying awake. I think what works so well for me with the previous one is the sort of cinematic flair and uh, all the different sort of settings that he put Spalding in and and the the colors and the the different sets and stuff sort of helped for me. But yeah, unfortunately, this time around, I felt like I kind of had enough. To me, it felt like a Spalding Gray masterclass, and I feel like I hadn't taken the necessary prereqs to like really appreciate it. (laughs) It was kind of a lot. And what also sort of frustrated me, and the reason, not the reason, but a reason we're not doing a full episode about this, other than there's just not a lot here, is because Soderbergh is the director, but he didn't even edit it. And they talked to the editor or, you know, someone who worked on the movie with him or with Soderbergh here. And he basically said to her, just pull clips that you think are interesting. And like, I'm really sort of struggling to find or figure out what his involvement was, because it's not like he was really shooting new footage. He's not credited as the editor. Some other person edited it. And it seemed like he didn't even do the first pass through. So I'm sure that he like helped construct a narrative, but it just feels in the midst of us talking about all these movies he directed, it felt really out of place, not just because I didn't enjoy it, but because it just didn't feel that he was involved to the 
same capacity, and he might have been, but I just didn't get the, the impression that he was involved to the same capacity that he is for these other movies we're talking about. Boy, I, you know, I get not enjoying it. I mean, it's ranked 18th right now in my in my list. Like, it's not it's not a movie I'm going to go back to very often. And maybe my expectations were lower based on how much I didn't really connect with him in the Grey's Anatomy. But I do want to defend Soderbergh's work on the movie, right? Like most feature documentaries have editors. It's not the director who's cutting the footage together. Even ones that are found footage documentaries. It's not at all uncommon for an editor to, to have somebody go through and pull clips of things and look for stuff and even do a pass. He's going to be then coming through. And I think the real artistry in this for me is that he's constructed a monologue all about death and, and the looming specter of suicide in this guy's life, this guy who would go on to kill himself. I felt that growing as the film went on, and I didn't know he'd had an accident. So when it cuts to him and he looks gaunt and so much older and he's sort of shuffling along with a cane and it was, I could see, you could sort of see death closing in on this man. It, that's when it really turned for me and I started to really dig into it. I think maybe I don't, my tolerance for Spalding Gray as a monologist is, is lower than I know than Mike's, I think, for sure. And I think that maybe here someone else is sort of curating his words, and I like that better. I liked Soderbergh's Spalding Gray monologue more than I liked Spalding Gray's Spalding Gray monologue. That's interesting. They, they show clips from Swimming to Cambodia in this that I recognize because that was the other monologue that I had seen in its entirety. I actually liked that more than this like maybe it's because it's like an uninterrupted you know full-on just rant and this is more piecemeal this does stick to its themes though uh it's not like this is random it's he's not just you know any old clip that is compelling it's you're right like he does craft to and stick with like a certain uh thematic narrative in this one but i think it's because of the sort of pieced together nature of it that it was a little harder for me to follow than something like Swimming to Cambodia, which was just him sitting at a desk. Like, I think I even said when we did the last one, oh, I like this because he's not just sitting at a desk with a notebook drinking a glass of water, but I kind of prefer that presentation. I'm trying to think if, like, this kind of presentation would work with me if I liked somebody better. Like, I think on the last episode when we did the, uh, the Grey's Anatomy episode, at least. I think it was Tobin, maybe, who confused Spalding Gray with George Carlin. Was that you? Yes. When you were younger? Yes, yes, yes. Like, I wonder if I was watching, like, a comedian sort of like that, you know, like somebody who took their own life or whatever, if I would like it more. And I'm not sure, I don't know. Like, I'm not sure why this didn't work for me. I don't know if it's because I didn't like the style of it, I, that I didn't feel, like, connected to him, that really my entire extent, my experience with Spalding Gray is... Grey's Anatomy and that one episode of Documentary Now and also his brief appearance in King of the Hill. I don't know anything more. So like for me to watch an entire documentary about this guy's life, I don't know what it was. It just didn't work for me. What did resonate for me, what did really hit me was when he talks about being King of the Hill, because I had forgotten that he was in that. And he was talking about how like the reason he took the part was because he was suicidal at the time and the character was suicidal. He's like, oh, I'll do it. And I was like, oh, God, like that's I mean, I know that's sort of like the artist's pain and stuff. But man, I was like, wow. Yeah, that was something about his personality that came to the forefront with me in this a lot more was how dark his humor is. I think I got it by the end of this and realizing, you know, him having taken his own life that he's kind of joking, not joking, maybe some of the time. And that's kind of scary, you know, and that's a little off-putting maybe, but it worked for him to be like this great storyteller and worked for his personality. But looking back on it, it is kind of scary how much he joked about it and ended up going through with it. Yeah, like I say, I'm not, I don't mean to stand up in a major way for this movie that I ranked so low. I guess ultimately I would rather watch this than watch Spalding Gray do his own monologue. I just found, I find him to be kind of, kind of a tiresome person. Like, <laughs> my favorite parts of this movie were the stuff where he wasn't monologuing, where he, where he was just being interviewed, where you have a man who we know because of just knowing who he is, that he is close to death and that his death is a suicide, that hearing him sort of begin to come to terms with what 
has happened to him in terms of his accident. I wrote my notes at the end of it. I kind of like it. It really goes somewhere. Like, that's the extent. I, this, is, this is not a recommendation necessarily, but I did like it better than the previous one. I would watch this documentary again if I watched more of his monologues in their entirety and enjoyed them and then wanted to see sort of like what was pulled from those. But I don't see that happening. Like, I think I'm good. Like, I'm just good with Spalding Gray. I think he's interesting and I think that he's singularly unique in what he does. I'm sure there's other people who do stuff like it, but, you know, in terms of what I've seen, he kind of is his own thing, and it's so specific and so him, and I appreciate that, but I just don't need to see more. But, yeah, I mean, it's fine. That's a TLDR. Like, it's fine. Yeah, yeah. Better than that, though, is Contagion, which is what we're here to talk about. I saw this movie several years ago. Not only did I forget how many mega stars are in this movie, but just, like, how good it is. Like, it's so good. Yeah, Totally. My second note in this is, God, I love this movie. And I almost forget it in between. I don't fully forget it. And I don't think it's entirely successful as a movie. Like, it's not a perfect movie the way we've we talked about on the Out of Sight podcast. But it is really, really good. And I do, I do just, I do love it. I have real, real love for this movie in my heart. The highest compliment that I can pay this movie is that while watching this movie, I coughed and I genuinely had a moment of terror. I was like, oh no! (laughs) And I was just like, oh wait, no, no, I'm just a lunatic. Like, that's fine. (laughs) But I mean, like, it's really just engrossing in that way. I also really love this movie. I'm a huge sci-fi fan and I've liked Soderbergh's last sci-fi movie, uh, The Solaris, I thought was pretty good. But this is way more my speed like grounded earthbound like contagious disease you know you don't really get a lot of this type of film either like you get stuff like the stand or outbreak like any two threads of this film would be sort of blown up to hollywood blockbuster level and then you start like Tommy lee jones or something but here he's able to craft this sprawling epidemic <laughs> i just love the pace of this movie i love the way it jumps around i love all the stars service it. I mean, it really, it just checks like all the boxes for me. The score, the Cliff yeah, Martinez. The score. Oh, man, the score. I'd seen this movie before. I vaguely remembered a lot of it, but like even sort of kind of knowing what happens, it's that music from the beginning and like these wordless montages of people getting sick and you're just like, oh God, like this is like, is this the closest to like a horror movie that he's made? Like probably, right? Yeah. Yeah, I was going to bring that up next that it absolutely crosses over into that territory for me several times. Like I I'd seen it before too and I had forgotten a lot of it because of how quickly it moves. Like I had forgotten how fast the outbreak starts. Like it's right away. Within like a few minutes there are bodies on the floor, you know. <laughs> Let the bodies hit the floor. Several of them, quickly. That's one of the things that's so neat about this movie is that it's able to be a horror movie procedural at the same time. Like, so much of my favorite parts of this movie are about how all this stuff works. How the CDC works, how virus hunters work, how um, epidemiologists work, and just literally how diseases spread like this. I remember I went to Outbreak with my dad and my sister. I was I would have been about 16, 17, and my sister was probably 11 or 12. We went to Outbreak when it came out in the theater. Have you guys seen Outbreak? Is it the monkey movie? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's the Ebola. They're, they're sort of riffing on Ebola. Dustin Hoffman and Rene Russo. And Cuba. And um, Donald Sutherland, I think, right? So anyway, we get out of this movie, and, it's, and so I'm like, you know, half scared to death because it's like, you know, like disease movie or whatever. Get in the car, we're driving. And my dad, who was uh, was in pharmacy for years and years and years, and we're sitting in the car, we're riding, riding, riding. And he, this is not a guy who exaggerates, right? Like literally two minutes in the car, no, nothing. And then he says, yep, it's uh, not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. <laughs> God. Yeah, like the fucking boom dropped uh, on the whole afternoon. <laughs> but so that, uh, maybe I, I've always sort of remembered that in my brain. How could you forget that? My yeah. heart turning cold as, as he, you know, and, and he's always had, you know, in since and he's talked about this other times too, like we are due for a major epidemic that will kill a lot of people. And so this movie is that the fever dream that I have when I think about that comes to pass in this movie. This is almost as if, especially the first half of this movie was kind of made for me in that way. We should say maybe that, that, that we follow a number of characters who are dealing with either experiencing the outbreak as sort of people who are getting sick or whose family members are getting sick, and then also the, the people who are trying to stop the outbreak. And so it moves around a lot between all these characters. And every time we cut to a new character for most, most of the movie, I'm excited at what their storyline is going to be. 
which is hard to do with as many characters as they're juggling here. Not only the juggling characters, but juggling perspectives, like from scientists and like Matt Damon's losing his wife and his kid. And then you have other people. You have John Hawks kind of in the background. When John Hawks showed up, I was like, oh, man, I forgot he was in this. Or I didn't know he was in this because I didn't know who he was when I saw this last time. Not only that, but you're also, this is probably the most globe-spanning movie he's had since like Traffic, right? Because like not only are we covering different people and different stories, but they're like in radically different places. Even just Gwyneth Paltrow, who is barely alive in this movie in, ter- in terms of like the real timeline, we see her in three or four different continents. You know what I mean? She's like all over the place. Like she's in radically different places. Right. And as kind of patient zero, we discover as sort of the, the source of the outbreak that also underlines the movie's whole theme or, or the thing it's trying to get across about. It's the interconnectedness of our modern world and the speed at which we can travel mm-hmm. to such massive population centers. Every time we cut to a new city at the first time we're, we're there, it shows us the population. Uh, You know, just without comment, it's just Hong Kong, 7.8 million or whatever. That is terrifying, too. But it all links back, as you say, the movie hops around the globe in the same way that the virus does. I really love the perspective and how it shifts in this film and and the globe-spanning aspect of it. It, And so much of it, it's cool because, like, you don't really see a lot of time and attention in these types of films generally spent to, like, how a virus spreads, you know, how how it multiplies realistically or, you know, seeing people in the actual lab, like, messing with you know, the disease and giving a press conference about that. I mean, there are just things in here that you don't generally see that take place between the frames of those bigger sort of blockbuster movies that this is all about those moments. You know, all the stuff at the CDC, all the stuff with Kate Winslet setting up the evacuation zones and all the health centers and everything. Like, you have very few moments, like, blockbuster moments like there's stuff towards the end that's very surreal like when Matt Damon goes shopping for the prom dress and he's like the only one in the mall little moments like the riots like they're in here but they're not the focus it's not front and center it's more about the red tape and the procedural of you know we have to get in front of this and Joey you know something that it reminded me of watching it this time was Shin Godzilla sort of the way that they (laughs) deal with Godzilla in that movie though it's all the bureaucracy it's what it takes to deal with a catastrophe and you know you have to all these different factors that you have to have in mind and it can be just like a nightmare of paperwork no I see that one thing I want to say is that you mentioned that the guys in the lab or the people in the lab doing the work one of them is Dimitri Martin stand-up comedian so Soderbergh once again going back to his well of comedians in a role where he says nothing funny in this entire thing like he's just like a straight-up scientist which is kind of funny or kind of crazy in and of itself one thing I wanted to say was that I don't think it's necessarily the type of movie that it is, but there was an article written on New Scientist when this movie came out and said that while this movie isn't like flawless, it's like way more into science and way more accurate than like any other blockbuster movie ever. You know, I feel like when this movie came out in 2011, it was probably before Neil deGrasse Tyson was the sort of science celebrity that he is. But, you know, if he was like picking this movie apart, like he would have probably been pretty happy with it, I think. They care about the science. They care about the numbers. Like, no movie, like you're saying, that's going to show you, like, the R number or whatever they're saying, like, the the multiplier. No movie that's going to spend that much time talking about that and, like, actually showing characters writing numbers on whiteboards (laughs) is going to make it inaccurate. If you're paying that much attention to it and the bureaucracy of it and the planning and the PR of it and, like, all of those steps, you're going to make sure you have it right. And if feels right and it's cool to see that you know people who actually know whether it's right or not said yeah it's actually pretty good yeah i've I've read some books by some of the cdc scientists who consulted in the movie and are sort of some of the the characters are, are based on and the way they describe the actual work you could imagine that being i mean they're not talking about this movie they're talking about the work they've actually done in the field with all these different diseases this movie clearly is you know, sort of gets its juice from real life. The best parts of this movie don't need to be made more dramatic. You just show the way these things actually are done. And A, we're fascinated by it. And B, as we've said, it's scary as hell what could actually happen. And I think that their attention to detail, as you say, is great. There are all these great 
shots that Soderbergh has where he will let the camera linger. And in a normal movie, it would be a mistake. You would cut it out. So for instance, when Gwyneth Paltrow gets, comes home and she dies, and then Matt Damon learns that before she's dead, that the kid is sick, right? His stepson, uh, Gwyneth Paltrow's son, is sick. He goes to pick him up from school, and we know what's coming. Like, we know that this, you know, this kid is not long for this movie. And as the kid walks out, he pushes through the, the door, and they walk out, but the camera stays on the door handle as it shuts very slowly. And later on, we're going to see a bunch of kids walking through that same door, but you can see that what he's, you know, he's showing us that this is a point of infection. This is a, a fomite, she's going to tell us later. This a disease can, can transmit through um, surfaces, right? He shows us that before he tells it to us. So we are, if you're paying attention even a little bit, you're seeing that he's using the camera to get all this information and kind of dread to us. Because the kid's an afterthought, right? Yeah. Like, the kid, like, it doesn't matter if the kid lives or dies, because, like, if this thing isn't contained, 70 million people are right. going to die. So, like, not only is he going to die, but that, that single door handle is going to kill, I don't know, a third of that school, right? So Exactly. It's a weapon. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Can we talk about how good Matt Damon is in this movie? He's been in a bunch of movies, obviously. He was great in The Informant, but, like, man, it's hard to say that there's a star of this movie. I think if there is a star, it might be Lawrence Fishburne, maybe? I don't know. Like, it's hard to say. Like, it's a really, like, an ensemble thing. But, like, man, Matt Damon, like, in everything he does in this movie, and I'm sure it's probably a level of comfort having worked with Soderbergh, like, four times before, or at least four times before, whatever, and going to be back again at least once for Behind the Candelabra. But he's just, like, the intensity and the sadness, and, like, when he finds out his wife is dead, he's just like, well, no, like, I was just with her. Like, that's not, like, I don't know what you're talking about. Like, everything, like, every scene he's in, you're like, oh, my God, like, this guy is killing it. This, for me, goes back to Soderbergh getting incredible performances out of certain actors at times, because I like Matt Damon. Like, I think he kicks ass as Bourne and stuff, but really, like, this is maybe, like, one of his best performances, like, as far as just straight dramatic acting. He's really got nothing to fall back on here. It's very, this is all I am. Like, he feels very normal in this movie, if that makes sense. Like, I feel like Matt Damon's going through this. Not a character or anything. Like, it really feels like he's bringing a lot of personal stuff to this role, and whatever that is, it's coming through. And I agree. I think I think everybody's really good in this because um, they don't have a lot of time to hook you, right? Like, they're going to be jumping around to a lot of people, but we're jumping around from Damon to Fishburne to Winslet to Jude Law to Marion Cotillard. Like, you know, all these actors are badass A-listers that are really going to bring their game here. And you got to bring your game because there's just no time. You're just going to get lost in the dust. This movie's moving too fast. So you got to get these, like, really strong performers to grab these roles and do them really well. And I think everybody's really good. That, at that scene between Matt Damon and the doctor where he learns that Gwyneth Paltrow is dead, as I understand it, they had a scene written which was close to this, but not exactly this. And then they were, they had, a, you know, one of the doctors on maybe in the hospital where they were shooting, or maybe it was a, maybe it was someone who was a, a consultant for the film. And they were asking him like, well, how would you do this? Like you've been through this, having to tell people that their loved one is dead and you don't know why. And so he started talking to them through it. And then my memory is that what happens is they, then they just said, well, let's just have you do it. And they throw him in the scene with Matt Damon and they ask, and they asked him like, how do people respond? And they, and he said, you know, well, they don't react at first. They don't understand, they're not hearing the words you're saying. And so they sort of improvise that scene as I understand it, that it was as it would really happen, you know, which is part of that sort of all that playfulness that I liked more than you guys did in like things like Full Frontal. I think he's really using that here to get these kind of performances from these actors. He's, he's throwing in real people in real situations with his actors, but he's doing it, you know, in scenes that, that have sort of a dramatic through line and that aren't just about playing. Like he's now taking the tools he learned and the skills he, he gained through the play and, and putting it into some quote unquote serious work. And I think that that's one of the best scenes in the movie. I, that, that scene gives me, like you say, it feels like it's actually Matt Damon having this conversation. Well, because, like, the word choice is so specific, where the doctor's like, so, he said something, like, I didn't write it down, but it's like, you know, and unfortunately your wife did die. It's this weird way of saying that that doesn't feel like a movie. Like a movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, right. It's almost like an afterthought, like, he's just like, well, you know, like, and she did die, but, like, it's, you know, we're going to find out what happened or whatever. And it's, like, so matter-of-fact 
and I guess authentic. I mean, I don't know. Like, I've never been in that situation, thank God. But you know what I mean? Like, I've never had a doctor deliver that news to me that, like, you know, a loved one is in surgery or whatever and didn't make it. But it feels out of place, but it also works so well. And I think that's why I, – I think it works so well because he's able to respond to it the way that he does. And I don't know if that's – like, I don't know if they shot the scene once or if they shot it ten times or whatever. But, like, whatever they did, like you were just saying, I mean, it just – they nail it all around. You know who else I love in this movie is Kate Winslet, who another actor that I always like. And she's playing a kind of different character, I would say, from the, the kind she usually does. So maybe that's not true. In my mind, she's she's often different from this, and I can't quite say why. It's not just the accent. But to have someone as sort of you know brash and strong and smart as she is, who then is also sort of vulnerable, not taking care of herself. And you know, like it's not her first time out in the field, but she's not the veteran of the field that Lawrence Fishburne was, who says he spent you know 15 years in the field. And it's also one of these things that, you know, these... I don't know a sort of gender correct way to say it. The balls on these people who walk into an epidemic, who like go to where people are getting sick and dying at massive rates. I don't have that. I don't have whatever whatever it would take to do that, you know? So real quick, I just looked up uh, Kate Winslet on IMDb because as we're talking about her, as we're thinking about her, I'm like, maybe she would be good to do a podcast about. But anyway, literally the first sentence in her IMDb bio says, ask Kate Winslet what she likes about any of her characters and the word ballsy is bound to pop up at least once. Oh, okay. Good, good, good. So, So I'm okay. And so I don't think you're, you know, gender incorrect or whatever. That's the word. I mean, that's that's the word. Yeah, her and Marianne Cotillard, who, like, sign up to go into the places where this stuff's happening. The, the people actually do that blows my mind. I love Wenslet in this. I think, for me, she's the star of the movie, even though she kind of dies halfway through. <laughs> but She kind of dies. Um, <laughs> <laughs> she gets sick halfway through, and she dies closer to the end. <laughs> I was – this is going to – this might sound weird, but watching this, I almost thought that Soderbergh was like, all right uh, – do George Clooney like I got so many sort of Clooney moments out of her like from previous uh, Soderbergh movies just little looks or whenever she's butting heads with someone she'll just sort of do like this stare at them the way Clooney does with her head kind of cocked a little bit and just wait and wait and then respond like I don't know there's just like a really great way she carried herself in this movie this this confidence and that um this character is just on a mission she's not robbing a casino but she is you know trying to save all these lives and stuff and so i, I don't know that kind of came across this time watching it i didn't ever catch any of that before but we're in the midst of all this so she's like unique in this movie in that she's unless i'm forgetting somebody the only one who gets sick and right away knows what that means you know like she's this cross-section between the people we're seeing getting sick and the people we're seeing fighting the illness and for her to like wake up in that hotel room or whatever and be like oh no like and basically you know at that moment she knows she's dead like it's it's a different kind of empathy or sympathy or just like heartbreak for her that she's smart enough and ingrained enough and well-educated and sort of read up enough or knows enough about what's going on to know that oh this is not good And then at some level, you know that she's totally accepted it. Even to her dying breath, she's trying to give her coat to the person next to her. She knew going into this that she was probably gonna die, but that it wasn't as important as trying to save other people's lives. Yeah, and one of my other favorite scenes that kind of sneaks up on me, she wakes up and, you know, with this terrible cough in the dark in this hotel room. We don't know for sure who it is, but we know. But the movie's not telling us right away. And then she goes and takes her temperature and then calls down to the front desk get the names of all the people who she'd been in contact with and might have sort of infected. And then she has this amazing phone call with Lawrence Fishburne where she's talking him through what's happened to her and what she's saying is like, I should have done more. Like I've infected more people and I'm not done here. I wanted to see this thing through to the end. Her service is so ingrained in her. You know, one of the things that we've noticed some in of these Soderbergh movies is that he loves people who are very good at their jobs. It's one of the fun things about the Oceans movies is these people are all really, really good at what they do. And she's the same way. And for her to be sort of taken out of the movie partway through, like that's that hurts me. She filmed everything in this movie in 10 days. Not only is she great, but, like, she does everything in this, like, really tight, compact schedule. Get it, Kate Winslet. There's, like, an insane amount of coverage in this movie. (laughs) Like, there's just so much footage in this movie, you know? Like, I really feel his sort of run-and-gun style here. It's just like, grab this shot, grab that shot, use this. Like, I feel like he used everything to craft this movie. One moment I like is when I think Marion 
Coltiar is is she's looking at the casino footage. We see the scene from Gwyneth Paltrow sort of partying on the floor, and anytime she touches a guy, it freeze frames, and then we cut to the actual video camera casino eye in the sky footage, and Marianne Cotier being like, there, that's one contact point, and then she sort of scrubs through more, and it goes back to, like, an actual movie of, there she is again, she's on the casino floor, and she's, like, rolling the dice, and touches another person, and it freeze frames, and we cut back to Marianne in the office on the computer. Like, I really love just how much different coverages in this film it really just helped the scope like expanding it even though we're in a room looking at the same thing twice like it still feels it just makes the movie feel bigger and it's this weird sort of inversion of that non-linear editing that we've been talking about in a bunch of his movies where like the first time we see that i think we just feel like we're back in time and then it cuts out you know what i mean like it's kind of to borrow from another podcast kind of like in the matrix where like we're in we're sort of it's like a reverse like we're in the architect's lounge then we zoom into that interview room where neo is talking to agent smith for the first time and it's like this different perspective this forced perspective this jarring cut but it's like this it's this way of watching or this way of telling the story that works and that isn't uncomfortable it's just like oh like oh okay like i thought we were here but now we're here yeah, he's somehow able not to overwhelm you mm. with all of this jumping around. Like, that is the real magic of it all. Like, any, I feel like this movie should just sort of halfway through just completely fall apart. Um, but, but somehow it seems to get, like, tighter and craftier and, and, and more intense and, and better uh, all the way up until the end. It just keeps changing until the end. It's a real heist. <laughs> well, I mean, it even morphs into, like, a conspiracy film at one point. There are way more than five people involved, I can tell you that much. <laughs> so it goes from, like, sci-fi to horror to conspiracy like it's all over the place and it's great there's also that one shot i mean go, going back because you mentioned horror that one scene where we see them basically scalp gwyneth paltrow when they're cutting into her brain i'm like oh my god like i forgot that was in this movie and what's really interesting and smart and cool about that is that they're cutting into her brain and we just see the two guys performing the autopsy and we don't see what they see but we see them see whatever it is and the panic on their faces i don't we still don't know exactly what it looks like you know what i mean but like it's like oh no like like this is not good like whatever this is about to be like this is not good yeah because the lead guys like the secondary guy says should i call someone what do you, do you want me to call someone he says i want you to step away like it's just <laughs> you just gets the shit gets real serious real quick i read did you read anywhere i remember i remember this somewhere from somewhere that that's the Gwyneth Paltrow head that they didn't use in Seven that was in the box. Oh, is it really? Yeah. That's what I remember reading somewhere along the way is that they used that head in this in that shot. That's terrific. Spoiler for Seven. Yeah, sorry, Jesus. Sorry. So, like, what's crazy about this movie on a whole, on a big scale, is that this is, again, Soderbergh team of Scott Z. Burns, who just wrote The Informant, which was the last feature that Soderbergh did. And they were going to do a follow-up. To, as a documentary about Lenny Riefenstahl, the German director, and then they're like, they realized that that was not a very lucrative, they wouldn't have a very big audience. <laughs> yeah, he's going back to art school with <laughs> yeah. that. So they were just like, well, what could we do? And they're just like, oh, let's just do like this. And like, it's weird. I mean, I'm sure it happens a lot, but it's just like, this was kind of like an afterthought or like a second thought or like this movie that we're gushing over that we enjoy so much that's so well made. It's just, well, this isn't really what we wanted to make. It's just, we figured that like more people would like this than our Riefenstahl documentary. <laughs> As I remember the story, Soderbergh says to Scott Z. Burns, like, well, what else are you interested? In. And he's like, well, these people at the CDC who go hunt viruses and the fact that an epidemic's going to come kill us all someday. And he's like, oh, tell me more about this idea that you have. That it's sort of a, it's a thing that he'd been sort of you know researching on the back burner, but thinking, oh, there might be something here to do someday. And yeah, you, you never know when that's going to come together. I want to link to one other thing that you said earlier, Joey, in talking about Caitlin's scheduling. In the past, we've called out casting directors who don't get as much love as they should. I'd like to call out line producers. So the line producer is the person who schedules the movie. And with this many giant stars and this many interweaving stories and this many locations, the scheduling of this movie had to be insane. You know, Kate Winslet probably only had these 10 days to shoot, these two weeks to shoot. And and to line her up in all the scenes she needs with everybody else in the movie and then get those scenes done, it's really a testament to whoever put that part of this movie together. They, I, You know, what a job it must have been. 
Well, I started watching it trying to see how many of the big stars were in scenes with each other, and doesn't happen all that often. Like, I think Matt Damon, he's mostly by himself. I think he has one scene with Kate Winslet, where I'm not even sure she may be played by a double because she's in Scrubs filmed from the back, and you just hear her voice, you know? And then she has, like, one scene with Larry Fishburne. But, like, most of these guys are off, like, making their own movies, or short films, or sort of, like, vignettes, and then they're woven together so well to make like one gigantic story it's kind of interesting how maybe just the nature of the script or you wonder like did the script was the script dictated by you know thinking about the line producer and the scheduling and all that either way it's incredibly smart you know what i just realized mike is that lawrence fishburne you reminded me because you called him larry this is the third podcast he's been on he was on a very early cage movie he was in rumblefish right rumblefish and then he was obviously in the matrix movies and also john wick too and now he's in this so i mean the three big things is he gonna show up in a charlie's movie has to be somewhere has to be somewhere I think at the time, something that may have given it a bit of a push as far as like helping it get made or getting seen or stuff. I mean, around this time, there was a really big, we were in the middle of sort of like the zombie resurgence, I feel a lot, or at least this like horror resurgence, but like body horror, things that happen to humans that turn them into monsters and like pieces falling off of us and, you know, just wasting away and and disease and all that. I feel like it's in the culture to a degree. Movies are being made about that stuff. And this is sort of like, as you know, we kind of get for a second Paltrow zombie when she's zonked out in the kitchen there for a minute. I mean, this is probably as close as we're going to get to something, to a zombie film that Soderbergh will do the same way he considers his Oceans movie his sort of his Marvel films, you know, like his superhero universe there. Like, this is just his take on that, and I totally love it. Like, we'll get his take on the action film with Haywire soon, and, you know, he, he just has, like, a very unique way of presenting these sort of tired, sometimes, these tired genres. Like, we've just seen so many of them done so well. Like, I think back to the Limey and the way, you know, he that could have just been another death wish and you know he totally like turned that into something else so it's really cool that's what's so weird about all these podcasts and i just checked that lawrence fishburne and charlie's do not cross paths unfortunately but there's still time we they have like a year or so before we finish that run that they can make a movie together that we can cover so maybe fingers crossed but what's weird mike is that through all of cage club there were a couple through keanu there weren't really through here it's just like the first one sort of but like we're not dabbling a lot in horror really i mean so that was why i was so surprised when we did children of the core in three for charlize we're like oh finally <laughs> and it's weird that following actors like the closest we had come before this was like pay the ghost maybe but like that's not like horror like it's just yeah like drive angry but even that is more like a midnight movie yeah like it's it's weird that these actors these directors like i mean we've talked about hundreds of movies and we just haven't come close to horror and like here i wonder if on imdb if this is listed as a horror movie i don't think it would be it just feels like it is it is listed on imdb as drama thriller which i feel is like the grown-up adult horror sort of you know what i mean like it's like we can't really sell a horror movie but like it's a thriller but like it's a good thriller and i feel like it hits those same beats but it's just weird how like this genre that we both love and we We'd love to talk about it. it just doesn't happen so when we like come close we're like oh yeah like let's let's do this another thing that's horrific in this movie that has changed my life is the, when kate winslet she references it a couple of times she tells people to stop touching their face that we what you say the human touches their face two three thousand times a day and it's such a vector for disease and that has stuck with me there are there are days where i will think to myself oh my god i just touched my face and i will really try hard not to touch my face again that day and i'm not trying to be a, ger- a germaphobe at least i hope i'm not i just there's a uh, things like that have stuck with me from this movie this part Part of it for me is asking, okay, these people who do go into these hot spots, what do they do to survive? How do they stay alive? And in reading the books by these people, it is things like not touching your face and just being really good about washing your hands, like thoroughly washing your hands. Like there's nothing in the world that's as effective overall, besides vaccines, as uh, as but in terms of day-to-day stuff, as washing your hands and not touching your face. The fact that they can make that the point, a horror scene, sort of, you know, I mean, that's... Right. It's, don't touch your face or you die. Yeah, it's really kind of amazing. I would just like to say that that entire time you were talking, all I wanted to do was touch my face, and I have not. <laughs> Good for like, you. what's frustrating about it is that, like, when you're watching the movie, you're thinking about it, like, all you want to do is do it, and you're like, no, I can't, I should do it. I still haven't, I still want to. I'm going too soon. Like, I, I can feel myself cracking, uh, but I haven't yet. 
there's a moment in this movie and it has to do with the touching face stuff like there's a moment that starts funny and then ends chilling for me is when Kate Winslet's talking to her partner at the time and he's like I think he's saying something like oh my wife is like she won't go anywhere without washing her hands like 10 times a day she's making me wear gloves like this and that she's overreacting right and Kate Winslet's just like no not really (laughs) (laughs) and then I think at the end of that scene which also I I hope was an ad lib because it just was the timing was perfect she says oh and stop touching your face without even looking at him yeah yeah without like just knowing just could sense it because like you said Toby they must train their manners at somehow I don't know what they do to get into that zone but yeah they need to train their body their muscle memory not to do certain things that you don't even realize you're doing what I like about moments like that and there's a couple of like there's two of those that i'm thinking of that i'm gonna say in a minute like this movie is super dark and super scary and close to horror but there's still these like funny moments like when she gets off the plane she's at baggage claim with that guy he's like i hope you brought a bigger coat than that we wouldn't want you catching a cold and it's just like like that's such like a weird like afterthought of like you know hope you don't get sick or whatever but like if she gets sick like she's not getting sick from the cold like she's making like, something way worse i laugh at that and there's another point in the movie there's jude law young pope himself who is basically like a video blogger that we find out is kind of getting money from like big pharma right so he's, it's something like he pretends that he's sick and that this one cure helps him to raise stock prices of that and there's this whole thing like that but they say at one point i think it's Lawrence fishburne is talking to that other doctor and they're talking about how to tell the world about this and they say we just need to make sure nobody knows until everyone knows like basically we need to like just have like a global press conference we can't just like tell a few people or whatever and that's you know he goes on and breaks that rule a little bit later when he calls his wife or he calls his friend or whatever and just like you need to get out of chicago but anyway he says that line and then smash cut to Jude Law's face, and it's just like, well, he's out there just running his mouth about this, and that was funny to me. Just like the editing cut right there was just like, you have the on the one hand these scientists, these doctors doing everything they can to find a cure, to keep things under control, to make sure people don't panic, and then on the literally the complete opposite, you have Jude Law like, hey guys, let's panic. Like this is crazy. <laughs> this is what the government. This is how they're handling it, and then you go to like the public, right? And that's what Jude Law represents, and it's like this is this is how they're handling it. It's like no. Like, spread the info. I thought that uh, Jude Law, I didn't realize, like, he was so nefarious. I thought that he was, he actually did get sick, and he, he was the type of guy who used to sort of boost products for companies to get them ahead on the stock market, but I thought he wouldn't do that in this case. And but he, he was, did, right? Uh, I'm not sure. Can we get some clarification on this? So that's the impression I sort of got, and then Wiki confirmed that. I thought they were trying to entrap him, well, and he wasn't falling for well, it anymore, because he was like, no, this is like the real, this is for real, and that was just sort of playing with being anarchy and all no, that. No, because like the cure that he says, I don't remember, I didn't write it down, like whatever that... Forsythia. The Forsythia, like that doesn't do it. Like that doesn't actually cure people. And so, like I think he's supposed to get like, he's he faces like fines or sanctions or whatever. And then I think like the big farmer, whoever he raises the money for, basically bail him out financially. No, it's his, it's his followers who bail him out. He has all these, he makes some point about like 12 million unique, whatever. And like, and the guy then says, you must have, you know, 12 million friends are generous or whatever. Ah, oh, they yeah, fundraised they, they crowdfunded it. Kickstarter yeah. before Kickstarter. This is, this is a riff on something that's become more prevalent in the last couple of years, the sort of conspiracy web stuff, right? Like these people who have, you know, entire entertainment networks based on conspiracy theories that on their face are ludicrous, but then that somehow people really want to believe them. They're sort of presaging. They're, they're seeing the charlatanism in that, in, in here. Another thing I like about this movie is that it's a real pro-civil service movie like the the civil servants that i have known the people who are you know who work in government who are not you know i don't know any you know hugely famous politicians but i know people who who work for the government and work really hard for not a ton of money to do like to do these kinds of things these kinds of things that that the private sector is just not equipped or not in the best position to do like hunt viruses and i think that he is so jude law's character is so set up as a as sort of the anti that and it's not my favorite storyline in the movie i think jude law maybe is miscast in it a little bit i think he's great a great actor and he does he does well with the part. But I was trying to in my mind figure out who else should be in, in that movie, who would have maybe made more sense in that role. I just I, yeah, I don't know. I didn't 
I didn't I didn't, didn't click with him. He had to steal a game from Watch the Throne. Who would you recast as Jude Law? Is he too handsome? Like, is he not, like, cunning? Like, I don't know. I think for me, it's that it might be that he's a Brit playing this, like, such a such an American voice. Like, I, I need someone like Mark Ruffalo in there or something. Like, let's, he's an activist in real life, so, like, it would be interesting to see him play this sort of faux activist twist character kind of thing going on i mean he fooled me the character like to be quite honest like i i never really saw him as the huge liar because there's like that moment where he's calling out Lawrence fishburne about like the number of people infected and who should know and like all these facts and he even's like and you told like your friend before everyone else like was that fair so like i i always sort of felt like he was on our side but i could also see it from the other way definitely yeah i i would cast to keep it in the cage club network i would cast philip seymour hoffman in that part and see what he could do i want somebody who is grubbier darker dirtier like someone who who would be i'm trying not to i'm trying to name names in, in the real media here you're just saying jude law is too handsome you don't believe him because he's too handsome i you know i think also letting him be a brit like it makes it feel more like a joke and I don't think he should feel like a joke. I think, and I don't think that that the if you talk to these people who do this kind of stuff, people, someone who is going to be an anti-vaxer at the end of this movie, that's cruel and criminal. Vaccines have done more to save lives in our civilization than anything else, public health-wise. And I, so, I, I, and I think that they they make him. They play him a little broad. I think that's what it is. He's playing it a little broad. And I think part of it is that he's got this accent and he's kind of goofy. So he feels like he's maybe he's maybe not harmful. And I, and I can see why they would try that. You know what it reminds me of? It reminds me of how I feel about Basher in the Oceans movies. It's kind of the, my least favorite part is this kind of Brit thing they've got going, which feels broader than the other stuff happening in the movie. Well, if you remember, he even Don Cheadle was like, "I hate this accent," and his agent was like, "You can't, you can't change it now." So I don't think you're wrong there. You don't think though that like just to play devil's advocate for a second, it doesn't give the movie more of a global feel to have this guy from another place in the heart of things. Oh, like sure. if everybody for the most part was like, you know, aside from Marion Cotillard, like everybody's just American. Well, no, there's, not, there's lots of Chinese people in the movie. Like they're in it, but they're not like who we're following. I think it would have been nice to see him operate from London during the problems happening there or you know somewhere else in Europe because I feel like we're maybe a little too top heavy in America throughout this movie a little bit possibly like the CDC maybe we could have gone with the um, World Health Organization instead or something we do Marianne Cotillard works for the WHO there we go. Okay, so we get there eventually, too. But, I mean, I almost feel like it's enough just to have the domestic view from Matt Damon be America, and then maybe we could have gotten a couple other countries snucking in there uh, at other parts. And, and just Jude Law in London could have gone a longer way than being in San Francisco because we had enough people already in, in the USA. Actually, one other thing real quick about recasting him as Philip Seymour Hoffman, there is a connection there. Matt Damon, Jude Law, and Gwyneth Paltrow were all in the town of Mr. Ripley. With oh, yeah, there Hoffman. you go. Yeah. So that was like the last time they were all together. So there was a, there's a reason, not only keeping in the Cage Club family, but keeping in the talented Mr. Ripley family. You know who else? Can I recast two other people in this movie? It's our new favorite thing to do. Uh, I don't know who to recast them as, but I would recast the young woman, Matt Damon's daughter. I find her to be sort of the poor man's Erica Christensen from Traffic. I don't really believe her sort of doughy eyes. And, and it may be the writing, too. There are a couple speeches she gives or, or see. She's kind of boring. She's kind of, she just doesn't doesn't jump off the screen the way that so many Soderbergh performers do. And the other, this is going to be a real controversial one. So get ready for this. Oh, wait, so, you, so you're not recasting her. You just I, don't I, want her. I don't know who to put her in, put in for her. I'm not recasting. I, just get out of here. I, yeah, I'm asking, I'm asking for her to be recast. I would go with Elle Fanning. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah good. <laughs> okay, the other one is Brian Cranston. Yeah, he looks a little funny in the uniform to me. Like, it, it, I don't know, at this time, I, he's he was known as, like, Seinfeld, Malcolm in the Middle, and I don't think he was Breaking Bad yet, or if he no, was, he was. Yeah, he was starting. He was. Okay, well, it was just sort of starting though. Yeah, wasn't it was a it? year I mean, or two. He wasn't, but he wasn't. He hadn't broken bad. He was still Walter White. He wasn't Heisenberg yet. But yeah, he he does. I mean, just seeing him in that thing you do as an astronaut, basically the same exact haircut and like outfit and everything, was a little hard to take him convincingly. I'm okay with I'm okay with him in this. Yeah, I mean, look, he's fine. I just imagine... Imagine Michael Keaton there, picking it up from Ray Nicolette style. Uh, yeah, or, or, um, James Gandolfini. 
Ah, there you go. Like someone who's going to throw their weight around kind of in a way. I, I don't know. I see him outmatched in his scenes with Lawrence Fishburne. And I think part of it is just size. There's just a size thing going on there. Yeah, I don't know. I, I just, I'm not excited. I see Brian Cranston dressed up in uniform. I'm not seeing a character, which is odd because Brian Cranston is so good. So, yeah, I don't know. Well, maybe it's just because there are so many small parts occupied by big names that that was just another one that should have been a character actor and not a star potentially on the rise like he was already famous for stuff but i mean he explodes after this and becomes like much more you know much different type of actor i feel or it's taken differently so so what you're saying is there's no small parts just actual literal small actors that you want a bigger actor in that role (laughs) all i'm saying is a less familiar face would maybe would have worked. Well, I, I feel like it's hard. Like that's one that's hard in retrospect because he's so iconic. It would be like, in a way, kind of like casting John Hamm a year into Mad Men. That now, you know, eight years later, you have this guy that like is forever tied to that role. That like in Baby Driver's like, oh look, there's look there's Don Draper with a weird haircut. You know what I mean? Like it's like this. It, it's not the same thing, but it's like when you have this career-defining part, and then you look at them in something else, you're like, oh well, like yeah, that's like, yeah. But I'm, I'm, I'm okay with that. I agree with you about the daughter. I think the daughter could be better. It just sort of felt like, especially, I think, so closely tied to Matt Damon, and like we talked about earlier, that he's doing such good stuff in this, that, like, to see her a little, not even do a bad job, just, like, do, like, a fine job. It's like, oh, you could have, that could have been better. Because it feels like, again, because no one on, is on screen for more than, like, say, 20 minutes, you kind of have to make every minute count, right? And, like, if you're not, whether it's your acting or whether it's the writing or whatever, if you're not making it pop, like, it's it's hard to stand out in a movie literally with, like, six or seven of the biggest movie stars in the last 15 years. You're here. You're here. No, I think you're, I think you're right. This is not me saying that these, you know, that, that they're not good. I just, that in a movie where it's sort of full of characters that I'm really with, I just am am less with them. The other thing is that for me, as the movie goes along, at the moments where it becomes more thrillery, where it sort of takes turns that don't feel procedural, like for instance, everything that happens to Marianne Cotillard after the kidnapping, I'm just... And also when uh, Jennifer Ely, I think is is how you pronounce her name, when she uh, injects herself to be the, the sort of test patient. It's like, okay, now I know you're a movie and you, so you have to wrap up and you're like, okay, fine. But I, I'm not okay with sort of either of their choices in a way. It doesn't feel, it feels more convenient to the movie and less to who the characters were. And again, having read the books about but you know, by people who have done this kind of thing, they do take insane risks and, and break rules and protocols when they think it's you know in the in the overall best interest of everything. But like, they get one monkey to survive the antibodies, and they've got a vaccine, and she immediately stabs it in her leg. I feel like there's one monkey we see. I mean, the time skips in this like a Futurama episode at times. Like it's just every day six day. 12, day 20, day 100, you know, like we really, I, well, I'm not sure that that's she, she has one. just said we have one that survived. She's holding this like vial of whatever. It's like we have, we've had one success. Now it's going to take months and months and months and this and this and that. It's going to be a year, blah, 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 blah. And then next thing we see is she, we see that one monkey and number 57 and she goes and there's no 58. Like it just goes to 57. And she takes it out instead. I don't know. I To me, maybe you're right. And I wish that they had jumped a little farther in time and sort of kept with the procedural elements. I, I, I sort of pretend that stuff doesn't happen when I, when, I, when I remember the movie. Would you have liked it more if they used the original take where she injected herself through clothing? And then someone on set was like, like there's a scientist or a doctor on set. They're like, no, 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 no. That's not how you inject yourself with a needle. And so they reshot it to actually like just put it in her leg or whatever. But like, would you have liked it better if she did it like really no. wildly wrong? <laughs> no. No, no, no. I'm more forgiving for her self-injecting herself for the interest of, you know, moving the plot forward than I am for what happens with Marianne Cotillard because I just don't feel like we've spent enough time with her being kidnapped to have Stockholm Syndrome and, you know, flee the airport with the real virus in her hand. Like, that, to me, feels a little concocted as a wrap-up. Kind of came out of nowhere to me. I almost thought, I just thought that she was going to actually get killed after they got the placebos. Like, they were, they were going to pull away and she'd be dead on the side of the road or something. I mean, I don't know, but anything but that, to me, that is the one part where the story goes one way and the writers go the other. Yeah, I agree. 
Marion Cotillard was six months pregnant by the end of the movie. So if you, so maybe they want, didn't want to leave a pregnant actress on the side of the road, dead, fake dead. But you know, <laughs> who knows? Maybe that contributed to not being able to sort of expand her storyline either. Yeah, true. Yeah, you know, like it's it's yeah. it's hard it's hard to know you know in a movie where like you're talking about where you have so many such complicated scheduling and then you throw in the fact that one of your stars is also increasingly showing pregnant. You know, it's like oh well, we have to be creative about how we do these kind of things. So. Just to circle back to something near the end of my notes here that I think really does work since we've been <laughs> since I've been harping on these actors. The idea that this movie gets across that a plague like this, that a that a virus like this would upend civilization is fascinating. Like it's not just that a bunch of people die, like what did they say, twenty six million people in the world died or whatever. It's not just the death, it's what that death and the fear of one another and this disease does to everybody and everything else. And I think this movie Like the looting? Like the looting like the looting and stuff? Well like yeah. almost no more touching, you know? Like it's going in the direction of don't touch each other. Like anymore. National Guard out everywhere, uh, riots if you know for water in the back of a truck, like uh, people getting shot across the street and 911, Matt Damon calls 911 and like receives gunshots, then people run out of the house next door and he's like calls 911 and it says, you know, due to a high volume of calls, we cannot accept your call right now. If you're reporting a body to be picked up, press one. You know, that that, that it would fundamentally change the way we act to one another, the way that, that we survive day to day, that that who had resources and who didn't would play such a role into how you not not survive, not if you survived or not, because it wouldn't make much difference there, but in sort of how you were able to, to survive after the plague with people on strike everywhere and nobody's picking up the garbage. Is the sewer system still working? Like all that stuff, read these people's you know, descriptions of what could happen to an advanced civilization and how fragile it really is. And I think this movie, it's one of the things that I think people don't feel, it's, it's much more comfortable not to think about. But to me, that's one of the real horror aspects of the movie. Oh, definitely. And also one other thing that it does is that it doesn't let you into the state of Wisconsin. And another thing that made me laugh in this movie is the the border guard had such a heavy, thick Wisconsin, Minnesotan accent. And it was just like, well, that's, that's a weird decision. Did you guys catch that or no? Like when Matt Damon gets up there, I think it's Matt Damon, right? He's saying it in this way that it's like so northern Midwestern. It's just like, oh, like that's just like this guy. Like it's not like they cast a guy with no accent for the movie. It's just like, oh, this is actually someone from Wisconsin protecting his state, which I laughed at. Part of what's so scary to me is how quickly civilization crumbles. Like, the movie, I mean, how long is the movie? Like, a hundred-something days? Like, it's not even a year of this. It's like half half a year, and the world has kind of gone to shit. Like, things are slowly seeming to get back to like a state of normal whatever that is to a degree but for the most part there's been a seismic shift on earth and you know they're never going back to the way things used to be no matter what like a whole new brand of thinking is going to spawn in society because of this event now and so yeah there are going to be you know people who are not going to want to touch anybody or anything and like what's that how is he going to function in life like what is that going to be like dealing with those people and their rights and yeah it's just a whole new breed of problems now speaking of the timeline i kind of lost track of the timeline toward the end because they're talking about like you know they're like they have like they sort of cut to like news broadcasts and they're like well you know this is expected to take 90 days or whatever and like you're suddenly like because there's such a clear delineation of time and days and where we were in the story and then like it feels like i don't i, I kind of lose just toward the end i kind of lost the train of like where we were or like how far out they were projecting and stuff like i'm not sure and maybe that's just sort of like the end not necessarily falling apart but just like sort of racing to a resolution but i was just like i don't know like it was such a clear calculated decided way of saying this is where we are this is what's happening here's how people are responding and then it was like and then here's the future basically uh, up until they is it up until they discover the vaccine is that when it stops i if you're right there's some place where it kind of stops and then we're, it feels like we're jumping ahead with no with no markers. I don't really mind that. It didn't it didn't sort of bother me. But it does. The end of this movie does feel a little mushy. Not in like a emotionally mushy sense, but just it's not as crisp as the opening. You know, two thirds of the movie is. Well, what's also sort of strange, and I mean, this is maybe not a complaint, it's just a weird little observation, is that, like, I expected this movie to be over two hours, and, like, it's, a, it's an hour 45. Like, I feel like it could have been longer. I don't know if, there wa- if they just didn't have more to tell, or, like, 
because it, I don't know if the ending feels rushed. Like, I don't know if I'm using the right word there, if that's how I really how I feel, but like, it feels like there's such specific, methodical editing and storytelling and scene-by-scene scene construction, then toward the end, it's just like, and then here we are. I don't know what I want. Like, I don't have a way to make it better, but I'm also okay giving this movie another, like, 25 minutes if there's more to tell or more to flesh that out with or, like, that it feels sort of more like the first hour and a half or whatever. Yeah, I feel like you could actually maybe cut some of the Jude Law stuff and beef up a couple of the other sections and stretch this to two hours for sure like i want to live i mean i don't really i don't actually want to live in this world like it's no i don't but i mean i want to watch this world more like i want to see more examples of how things are going off the rails i agree like there is kind of it's kind of a non-ending to a degree it's just going to be like okay we've got a cure and we're dispersing it and things are going in the other direction now like not everything's better but it's not going to get much worse hopefully and then it kind of does like this weird ends at the beginning moment where Matt Damon finds his wife's camera in the closet and she starts going through the camera and then we jump all the way back to day one when the actual virus is being created by the fruit bat and the pig mixing and you know and that's when I realized the first time watching it like the movie starts on day two like I didn't even realize it until this time around like oh like we're totally in the dark about that first day until the very last frames of the film. I think the first thing that we see in this movie is, like, Gwyneth Paltrow cough. Like, she's sick from frame one. Right, like it's, right. It says day two, and she's, like, coughing and, like, straight up doesn't look good. But, like, in terms of the ending, like, there's really only two endings that this movie could have. Either they find a cure or everyone dies, right? Like, so it's, like, it's just, I guess, how do you depict that? It just didn't feel like finding the cure was conclusive or final right like because it just feels like oh after the movie ends there's like all this other movie is gonna go on (laughs) like to me it that's how it feels it just didn't feel conclusive which i think is maybe why it wraps itself back around and shows you that first day because when you see that you're leaving the theater with like a chill instead of confused as to why we're at matt damon's daughter's junior prom in the living room (laughs) It's nice and everything, but, like, I'd much rather end on the handshake between the chef and Gwyneth Paltrow there. Like, yeah, it's much more of a, of a thrill to leave the theater on something like that. I do love that ending. That, that's, that was a really smart thing. And it gets, it's back to the procedural, right? It's back to the literally how, did this ha- how does this happen in, in real life that I like so much about this movie. And I, I think that I totally agree. I wonder if the Matt Damon prom thing would be better if they had a different actress in that part, if I, if I had been more with it. I don't know that that's true. I'm not sure it would make any difference because I, I am, like, I don't, I am with them. Like when they go to the supermarket and, you know, people are like coming at them and his, his sort of fear for her that she might get, Matt Damon, we maybe should have said much earlier, turns out to be immune to this virus, but he doesn't know for sure if his daughter is. They have no way to tell. And so he's trying to, he can go into these stores. He can you know, touch the fomites. He can get sneezed on, but she can't. It was so many of these stories, as you say, I would follow, you know, a lot of these stories if they were their own movie, you know, you could pull them out and make them their own, their own movie. And a lot of his, I could, I don't know. I don't know that that, that, that last part is the, I guess I what I'm saying ultimately is I'm glad it ends where it does. I kind of like the prom because it reminds me of The Loved Ones, which is a straight-up horror movie where about a prom at home and that's sort of a, a weird little, you know, girl having a, a messed-up prom at home. So this is a nicer way to sort of depict that type of moment than that movie. Uh, did either of you, circling back to day two at the very start of the movie, did either of you catch that the guy that she's having an affair with and she's talking to on the phone is none other than Mr. Steven Soderbergh? Of course, of course. Does he play his own bloated corpse in the bathtub, though? That's what I wanted to know. (laughs) No, I don't know. I have no other notes about this movie. Mike, do you have anything else to say about Contagion? No, I just want to reiterate how much I like the movie. I mean, you know, it's not perfect, but I mean, it's great. It's one of my favorite Soderbergh movies. I think I have it at about six, maybe, like right after Aaron Brockovich. At seven. You have it at seven. Seven? Okay, so, you know, top ten. And it might shift a little higher, maybe, for a couple weeks. I don't know. It's got to have some competition coming up. I just feel like this kicks off a really good run of films, and uh, I'm just really excited to keep going. I think we've 
got some momentum here and it's going to drive us till the end. Yeah, to me, it's in that range with Ocean's 12 and the Limey and Sex Lies where just like, oh, these are all really good and I don't know where it should be. I'm not going to crack my top four. I sort of, while we were recording, I was fiddling around with it, moving it from like seven to six to five to six. And I think I'm at six right now. But you're right, like with Haywire and Magic Mike and Side Effects as the next three movies, it's like, oh, like something's going to get bumped. I know that because I know that I love Haywire. I know that I love Side Effects. I'm expecting to love Magic Mike, especially with the Magic Mike's podcast now available on the Cage Club Podcast Network. It's a good problem to have, I think, not knowing how to rank all these great Soderbergh movies down the stretch. Tobin, any last thoughts about Contagion? Only to say that I've had a number six since I put it on my list, so we're all right in the same zone, which is not a surprise, I guess. We're in the quarantine zone. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Maybe we're in the immune zone. Um, if people have not seen this movie, they really, really should. This is a movie that, as you say, you can watch as a horror movie. You can watch as, a, as sort of a detective story procedural. You can watch as a dystopia movie, like The Coming of the Apocalypse. I think it works in so many moments and in so many of these levels with, with these great performances and great actors. This is a movie I do return to, and I and I will occasionally show it in, in a class to people who've never seen it before, because usually it's it sort of has gone under the radar. People don't know this movie or they've heard of it, but they haven't seen it. And almost always people respond really, really well to this movie. Movie. So I was very excited to see this again. And I'm just to echo you guys, I'm really looking forward to this next string of movies. I've never seen side effects. So I'm really curious to sort of see how that fits in with all this. But yeah, I'm, I'm a Contagion fan. And I think what's also really good about this movie, even if you've listened to this podcast, and you haven't seen the movie, like, aside from knowing that Kate Winslet dies, I don't think you can really spoil this movie. Like, it's not about what happens, it's about how it sort of is depicted, right? right. Because, I mean, like, Gwyneth Paltrow is dead in the first five or ten minutes. Like, that's not, like, that's sort of, like, the big event in the movie. I mean, Kate Winslet getting sick and dying is a spoiler. Yeah. But, like, other than that, like, it's it's just about the performances, about the pacing, it's about the scripting, it's about the constructing one scene after another. And, like, even if you know what's happening, I don't think this makes the movie any less enjoyable really the first time i mean it might be a little bit less suspenseful but i think it still would work and i think that's the great thing about a procedural it's not about what happens as much as it's about how it happens and that's the real power of this movie and the and the again i can't reiterate it enough you know soderbergh again making a specific you know one single overriding aesthetic decision to then apply to the whole movie and to make this kind of movie as a procedural i think was was such a smart way to go for exactly that reason yeah absolutely so for all things Cinemakers and all things Steven Soderbergh and all the movies that we've talked about and everything that's going to come down the pike in the next few weeks, you can go to cageclub.me or facebook.com slash cageclub or at cageclubpod on Twitter. Find all episodes of this show and every other show on our network, including the ones we mentioned today, like Cage Club and Keanu Club and P.S. I Love Hoffman and Magic Mikes and everything else. Cageclub.me, facebook.com slash cageclub at cageclubpod on Twitter. Email us, mailbag at cageclub.me. I don't think we're going to still be recording this by the time you hear this, but I mean, like, just say hi. I don't know. Whatever. We'll figure it out. And there will be more Soderbergh to come. And there'll be other cinemakers as well. Absolutely. I'm Jimmy Lewandowski. I'm Mike Manzi. And I am Tobin Addington. And we'll see you next time on Cinemakers. Cinemakers.